you have no idea what's going to be going on in your child's life when they're 30, when they're 35, when they're 40. They could be in the middle of a divorce. They could be having a drug addiction problem. They could be living overseas where distribution from a U.S. trust could cause a massive tax issue. You know, there's all sorts of implications. My advice generally is don't build in years. Don't build in a required distribution at any time. Have it discretionary. Your trustee can make a decision and write a letter of wishes to your trustee indicating your hope and your wish and your intent. Welcome to Financially Ever After Widowhood, the podcast where we empower women to take control of their financial future after the loss of a spouse. I'm your host, Stacey Francis, President and CEO of Francis Financial, an award-winning and nationally recognized financial advisory firm. With the help of incredible guests, I'm ready to guide you through this challenging transition. Islets, clats, crats, slats, estate taxes, and more. Oh my, that's what we are talking about today. We're talking about the most important vehicles that you can make sure are part of your estate planning to ensure that your loved ones and the causes that you care about receive your money at your death and not Uncle Sam. In fact, we have our perfect person to speak about this today, Sarah Constantine with Arnold Porter, who has a specialty of working with high net worth families, individuals, and closely held businesses, helping them with estate tax minimization strategies. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Now, We'll be talking about for people here in the U.S. domestically, but Sarah does have an additional superpower, and that is also working with international clients, helping them create tax-efficient strategies for their wealth, for their investing, and for their life. I'm so excited to have Sarah here to share with us, again, how you can make sure that your hard-earned dollars, that they go to the people you love the most and the causes that are important to you. Without further ado, please help me welcome our special guest today, Sarah Constantine. So happy to have you here, Sarah. And we are going to be talking about some really important topics all about estate planning for ultra high net worth individuals. And part of the reason why I'm so excited to have you here, not only do I really adore you, but also you have the ability to take some pretty complicated concepts and make them understandable. And that's, I have to say, just such a very special gift and superpower that you have. So thanks for joining us, Sarah. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be here today. It's great. Yeah, we're going to be having some fun. My first question is, how did you get to trust an estate? Did you know as a little girl that this is what you wanted to do as a trust and estate mm -hmm. attorney? What did that journey look like? I don't know that I would have said that I wanted to be a trust in estates or a tax attorney when I was a little girl. I think my mother would probably have said that you were going to be an attorney just because of my personality. Did you give uh, your mom a run for her money? Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> I'm a firstborn daughter. But realistically, I was a Girl Scout. I'm still a Girl Scout. I am someone who believes in service. And so for me, this profession really is about serving families and making sure that families are set up for success for many generations. My coming to trust and estates is a personal matter. My dad died when I was 15, leaving my mother a widow at the age of under 45 with two little girls. 
Intel. Oh my gosh. And this was in the mid 90s, which was not a very easy economic situation. So for me, I live in grief. I know grief. I have it in my being all the time. I feel like being a trust and estates practitioner with that background, I bring to the conversation a sensitivity to how hard this topic is, yeah. but also a knowing of the tremendous gift my clients are giving their families and their issue by having their affairs in order. For me, that's how I became a trust and estates lawyer. I was in the nonprofit sector before doing really wonderful, amazing work. I wanted to make a more very tangible difference. I'm a checkbox checker, and this is a great place to make a real tangible difference in my clients' lives. That's why I chose this profession. I did know going into law school that I wanted to do this. Love it. I know that you tend to work with net worth individuals, but a lot of even higher net worth individuals don't have their estate planning documents in order. Every couple months, there'll be someone, a celebrity that passes away and they have a will that's outdated or blessed they don't even have a will. And we're all, again, reminded how important this is. But what are the things that you tell your clients that they have to think about if they're in these higher echelons of wealth and what they need to be doing for estate planning? There's obviously the basics. Get your will, get your revocable trust, get your powers of attorney, get your healthcare proxy, which I know you've talked about with other professionals on this pod. I'll say like C, episode mm-hmm. one. So that's like threshold only because you want to make sure you have your team in place. When you pass away, who is the team that's going to step up and handle your financial affairs and make sure that things are carried out and effectuating your wishes? That's baseline. The other thing I would say for clients who are very high net worth or more public figures, it's really critical to fully fund a revocable trust. At least that's what I recommend to my clients so that you're avoiding probate to the extent that you can, or you're minimizing the disclosure on probate. What most people don't realize is that their will becomes public once they die. So everybody gets to see what everything. Everybody gets to see in your underwear drawer. Underwear drawer. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. You know what's interesting, too? Because I remember years and years ago, like in the 90s, rival trusts weren't quite as common as they are. And I'll be honest, I just put a trust in place for myself. And again, in my mind, I always thought this is for those ultra high net worth individuals. And it's something, of course, ultra high net worth, but that regular person putting your property in there. For me, I put our vacation home in there as well as our primary home here in New York City so that we know that it will go into the trust. We can set up beneficiaries on the trust, which is great can't really do that in the same way with a house. And then we don't have to worry about it being hung up in the core obey while the kids can't sell it. They can't rent it. They have to wait until it goes through. And it can be, I mean, months. I've even heard horror stories of years. Yeah. 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 I have other practitioners I know who've waited many years to get letters. Not only is it important to avoid probate, but also Let's say you become incapacitated, mm-hmm. you have a terrible accident and you can't make decisions for yourself. If everything is funded in your revocable trust, whoever you've appointed as your successor trustee can immediately spring into action, either during your incapacity or right upon your passing. I've had that happen. I had a client who was brilliant and had a very good financial advisor, frankly, who made sure her revocable trust was fully funded. So when she passed away and we knew she was ill, she had a terminal illness. 
within four days, the new trustees were in place, had access to the bank accounts, were writing the checks to the funeral homes, were handling all the affairs for her children, and we didn't have to wait for probate. So that's a non-tax reason and a non-tax planning thing that you should definitely have in place, no matter who you are, frankly. Especially folks who have a large financial footprint where people depend on them for their economics. You know, you have housekeepers, you have doormen, you have all these folks who bills you have to keep paying upon your passing. And not to make too simple of it, but here in New York, we have what's called Easy Pass and in other states called the Orange Pass, where instead of having to sit and figure out the right change and give it to the toll person, Mm -hmm. you could just kind of go straight through and they let you go through. I think it's now up to 15 miles an hour. So you can actually go pretty fast now. Yeah. So I feel like, you know, a revocable trust, we're doing the Easy Pass. We're doing the Easy Pass. That is a brilliant analogy. Yeah. And we're actually saving money because I know those passes, you pay less per every time you go across a bridge or whatever. Now, the other thing that we hear a lot about, of course, is estate taxes, Yep, federal estate taxes, and then for certain states, actually, estate taxes or inheritance taxes. Give us the lowdown on what things look like today. And I know that there are some potential changes on the horizon that could drastically change things and make many more people having to fork over money to Uncle Sam than we would ever think would have to do that today. Yeah. So right now, the federal estate tax exemption is at the highest all-time level. So it's at $12,000.92. So $12,920,000 per individual. Meaning, in layman's terms, you can pass just about $13 million worth of assets to anyone that you want without incurring federal estate tax. Now, that's a unified credit. So it's $13 million across your lifetime and at debt. So if you made gifts during your lifetime, you add that back in to then look to what your available credit is. Mm-hmm. If you're a married couple, generally look at that as a united front. So you're looking at $26 million as a married couple, because if you're U.S. citizens, you can freely pass to each other. And then you look at the pot at the end. Yep. You know, many people are worried about estate taxes, as you rightfully said. Today, it's not hitting that many people. I mean, yeah. there's not a ton of folks out there who have assets in excess of $26 million. All, all of my clients do. <laughs> and that's where we really add that value to minimize the estate tax exposure. But just to pause on your other question, which is the state estate tax. So in addition to a federal level estate tax, which to be clear, if you have assets in excess of that $13 million number and you pass them on to someone other than your spouse... You would be subject to 40% tax on a graduated basis on the amount above that $13 million. You're paying Uncle Sam 40% above $13 million. And then if you live like me, you live in New York, your state estate tax is actually a much lower number in terms of the exemption. And your state's tax is going to be 16%. So... If you are a New Yorker and you have assets in excess of the New York exemption and the federal exemption, you're looking at over 50% estate tax. That's really painful. Yeah. That's really painful. (laughs) Most folks don't need to worry about state-level estate tax because only 17 states plus the District of Columbia assess estate. Wow. And and aren't we lucky to live in one of them that do? As it, it's generally the high tax states, right? So, you know, yeah. New York does. Oregon, ironically, has a very low level estate tax threshold. So they start assessing 
estate tax in Oregon above a million dollars. Connecticut has one of the highest at just over nine million. Mm -hmm. New York, I think, is just shy of seven. One of the things that's in the news is come, is it 2025 laws sunsetting? Could those numbers change and become lower? On the federal level right now, the, the exemption that is, I'll, we'll call it 13 million for purposes of conversation, is due to sunset to 5 million adjusted for inflation effective at the end of 2025. So January 1st, 2026, the exemption without any change to Congress. Dropping by more than half. Correct. Well, it's going to be adjusted for inflation. And inflation, as you know, is quite high right now. So it could be around 7 million. So it could be around half. I don't really know. It's going to depend on what the numbers come out at. But yeah, it's a significant decrease. And we saw this threat in 2012. So in 2012, there was also a threat that the then exemption of 10 was going to go back down. Yep. I remember that. And that's actually when I started practicing. And it was a massive scramble to have a ton of trust set up, assets transferred, gifts made to ensure that you could fully utilize that exemption that was in place. Because this is really a gift from the federal government, right? The federal government is saying, hey, we're allowing you this opportunity not to pay 40% tax on this asset. And if you gift it during your lifetime on all the growth of that asset after you've gifted it. And that's tremendous, right? Really the advantage, and I'm sure we'll get into this, but the advantage of gifting during your lifetime to the extent that you can is not only do you get it outside of your taxable estate, but all that growth can go to your kids free of estate tax. Yeah. And that's really tremendous. And I think that that's one of the things too, you know, many people think about giving gifts to their loved ones upon their death, but how powerful it is to do that during your lifetime where you can actually see the impact that it has. Can you talk about the gift exemption Mm -hmm. limit each year and then some other ways that might make sense to be able to transfer money to other family members during your life? Sure. So there's two types of gift exemptions. So we have to bear in mind, there's this federal unified credit, we'll call it, which is that $13 million for a yep, state. The, that that really so big that, number that we have. That's our the life. lifetime exemption number. You can give that $13 million away tomorrow, and it's using your lifetime exemption. Anything in excess of that's going to be subject to federal estate tax. You also have an annual exclusion gift, which you've probably heard about. Most people have heard about it, right? Where you can give any individual an amount equal to this annual exclusion amount, again, adjust for inflation. So when I started practicing, it was, I think, $12,000. Now it's $17,000. So you can give $17,000 either directly or in trust, and I'm putting an asterisk on that, for the benefit of another individual times however many individuals you want to give to. So if you're someone like me and you're blessed with three children and maybe your children have children, you can multiply that out by 17 every year and not worry about utilizing your $13 million exemption against that gift on an annual basis. That's a big number. You know, it, it is a big it, number. Yeah. Most people would cover a life insurance premium. So most people who have these gifts, you know, you would buy a life insurance policy. And this is kind of ahead of ourselves here. But how do you hedge against this estate tax that might be due to you? Yeah. If there is going to be an estate tax, where do your kids come up with the money to pay for it upon your death? There's a few things. One would be, let's say you are a business generator. You've started your own startup. You've got a lot of value in your business. And so you end up and you pass suddenly your business is worth $50 million, but you have no cash to pay the state tax. 
and you don't have a surviving spouse. So we're not taking advantage of the surviving spouse. So one thing, the federal code has some exemptions for folks who have special types of closely held businesses, which allow you to defer the payment of that estate tax over time. That's just something to note. And you should look into that if a client does hold a closely held business that might qualify for this exemption. But for the most part, folks who have assets in excess of a certain amount and are going to have a state tax due, the best way to pay for that tax is by life insurance. I'm not in the life insurance business, but I do think that it's very important for certain clients to have life insurance so that you can provide for that liquidity. Bear in mind, you should have your life insurance in a trust. How do you hold that life insurance? Because if you have life insurance to pay the estate tax, that life insurance, if not held correctly, could even generate more estate tax. Exactly. Exactly. So if you are the owner of your own policy, so I buy a policy for my life of $5 million, we'll call it $10 million for purposes of conversation, and I'm the owner of the policy and I name my husband as a beneficiary thinking I'm so smart. Yay, I'm so smart. Well, no, because when I die, that $10 million policy is deemed owned by me, even though it's paid to my husband. So if my other assets bring me above that $13 million number, I may be subject to a state tax at that point. And I say may because I have a spouse, but assuming I didn't have a spouse, went to my kids, now I have to use the life insurance proceeds to pay for the tax associated with the life insurance. So the way you get around that is you create a life insurance trust. A life insurance trust would be created for the benefit of your spouse or your children, your family, or anyone, frankly. It could be charities, what have you. And the owner of the policy is your life insurance trust. You should not be the trustee of your life insurance trust. So you'd have to identify an individual that you trust or a company that you trust to serve as the trustee. And then annual premium payments would be paid through the trust. So you would make a gift of cash to the trust each year. And then the trust would make the premium payments. And the trust is the owner of the policy. The trust is the beneficiary of the policy. And when you pass, the death benefit then gets paid to the trust. And all of that, you know, in my example, my $10 million is in a trust for my husband and my kids completely estate tax free. Is there a limit to what the premium can be that you pay each year? Let's say that premium is $50,000 a year. So it depends on the beneficiaries of the tenants and, and how many beneficiaries. So if you only had one beneficiary, then 17,000, then you can do 17,000. And so if you've got two beneficiaries, 34,000, correct. The amount that the premium can be without taking from that lifetime exemption, that large $12 million mm-hmm. number, and just being able to use that 17, it's based on how many beneficiaries you have. Correct. From a technical perspective, you have to make sure the trust has specific language to ensure that the $17,000 payment qualifies for the annual exclusion gift. So it's something that- And is that here in crummy letters? Crummy, exactly, Stacey. Where did the word crummy? It's a a case. It was a a messy eater or something, right? It's someone's last name. (laughs) Okay, all right. Because every time I think of crummy letters, I think of like my daughter eating banana bread, getting crumbs all over the kitchen. It's not a good fit. It's not, but it's the case and we haven't come up with a better name. Okay. Um, That makes me feel better. So question, let's say, you know, you've got your two beneficiaries and you've been paying your premium $34,000 a year. And one of those beneficiaries, a child, unfortunately develops a gambling or drug addiction or something like that. What can you do if this is an irrevocable trust and can you take them out? And if so, does that put you in jeopardy? 
of having to use your exclusion? Let's take a few things in first. With respect to the annual exclusion gifts, you make a check of 34 to the trust. In order for that 34 to qualify for the annual exclusion, that beneficiary has to have the right to withdraw the money from the trust. And that's just part of the code, right? That's just what the case yeah. law says. They get a letter that says, your mom made a gift to the trust. If you'd like to have it withdrawn, see me. That's what the trustee says to the Benny. Now. And then I go yeah. to the child and say, if you withdraw this, you're proud of for us, your life. <laughs> well, exactly. So typically, if you are seeing a professional like myself, your trust will be fully discretionary with respect to everything else. Then you pass away, and this trust has, in my example, $10 million in it. The trustee never needs to make a distribution of a dime out to that beneficiary. It's fully discretionary. Got it. So that's typically how I would draft my trust so that you're not required to make distributions out to your gambling child at age 35 or age 40. A lot of people will come to me and say, well, isn't that how you're supposed to do it? It's supposed to pay out at a certain age. And my view of the world is you have no idea what's going to be going on in your child's life when they're 30, when they're 35, when they're 40. They could be in the yep. middle of a divorce. Yep. They could be having yep. a drug addiction problem. They could be living overseas where a distribution from a U.S. trust could cause a massive tax issue. You know, there's all sorts of implications. My advice generally is don't build in years. Don't build in a required distribution at any time. Have it discretionary. Your trustee can make a decision and write a letter of wishes to your trustee indicating your hope and your wish and your intent. I love that. That just takes all the scariness about not knowing about the future away. It does. Know? And it allows you to put it in writing. And in your letter of wishes, you could be much more verbose than you typically would be in your yeah. trust agreement. It can say, yeah. our family has these values and we yep. think these are the types of things you should be spending this trust money on. And if a child comes to you with a great business idea, we want you to say yes and invest in them. Yeah. But if they come for the seventh time and it's still a failure, use your discretion. You know what I mean? You can really be as long-winded or as brief as you want. And I've had clients go both ways. Wonderful. So we just talked about if there is an estate planning tax, then how we can make sure that there's life insurance that is protected from estate planning or from estate taxes that can pay for that. Tell me a little bit more about how we can reduce our estate via charity. I wrote a check to, actually it was credit card, to the American Heart Association, right? And so that's the normal that many people do. But what are some other ways to be more effective from a estate planning perspective and reducing taxes for being able to give to charity. Well, bear in mind that your gifts to charity through your estate should qualify for the charitable deduction. So they should reduce whatever you would then have to pay for estate taxes. Gifts to charity aren't subject to the same 40%. Provided, and this is again, my technical tax lawyer is, you know, it has to be a certain type of charity, meaning it has to qualify for the deduction. But most U.S. charities, you know, would. There's a few things you can think about when you're considering charitable deductions, both at an estate moment, but also an income tax moment. Mm -hmm. Many of my clients are actually young professionals, entrepreneurs. They're actually looking for income tax deductions. When you can pair an income tax deduction with an estate tax plan, I think that's like magic. One of the things you could do, and you could do this during your life or in your will or your irrevocable trust, preferably is create a charitable lead annuity trust. You can create a special trust that pays out to charity during a specified number of years. They pay out an annuity or a unit amount. 
And then at the end of that number of years, whatever's left goes to your family. This is actually what Jackie Kennedy had. So it's a beautiful plan because you get an estate tax deduction. You get to benefit charities. But at the end of the day, to the extent there's any bonus, it goes to your family. You could set this up essentially in my charity, a savvy lady. So I can set up a charitable lead annuity trust for, let's say, 20 years. It's paying a percentage out of that trust, that amount every single year. And then upon the completion of 20 years, even if I'm still alive, that can then go to my children. It can either go outright to your kids or... In a trust. Into a trust. It's professional. Yeah. Go to a trust for the veteran. A trust. Exactly. Exactly. And that money escapes outside of my estate and it goes into the hands of my children then. Correct. In their trust. Correct. If structured properly, you could get an income tax deduction. Today. A full income tax on the amount of the full gift today. So let's say you put in a million dollars this year, Stacey, you would get an immediate million dollar deduction this year. And it would make sense to do that if, let's say... I had really, yeah. So I'm, don't worry, everyone listening. I'm not selling the business, Francis Financial. (laughs) But like, let's say that did happen, I would be owing, gosh, so much in taxes that that would be a great way to benefit a charity, have a tax deduction, and also be able to get money out of my estate into trust for my kids during my life. Correct. So, question we just talked about putting a million dollars in, for example, Mm -hmm. when you see charitable lead annuity trusts, do you see those numbers at like a million dollar level? Like what makes sense? Because there is some paperwork. There is some- paperwork. I mean, it depends on your local council and how expensive lawyers are. I, Stacey, I'm not going to hide. I'm an expensive lawyer. So typically- But you're worth it, Sarah. I am I am very much worth it, but I just, I'm expensive. So not everyone wants to spend over a thousand dollars an hour for an attorney. Most folks aren't going to come to me for a million dollar class. Most people yeah. are going to come to me and say, I want to make a million dollar charitable gift. Now, I know many people and your attorney is, in my view, only as good as their referrals. So I know a lot of folks who do great work who could set up a clat for less than I could and for a million dollar clat. I typically see clats in my business more in excess of $10 million. Yep. Got but it. that's just Got it. because of my client base. Yep. It doesn't have to be. I've seen clats for $500,000. I've seen charitable trusts for $700,000. It's something you'd want to talk to your financial advisor with about yeah. and your lawyer about and run numbers because really it yeah. becomes a number game. And we just talked about a clat. And again, everybody clat is charitable lead annuity trust. Can you talk a little bit about charitable remainder trusts yeah. and what those are? Yeah, it's the same concept in reverse. So a charitable remainder trust is you create a trust for your family during your life there, a particular period of time. And at the end of that term, the balance then goes to charity. Yep. I always say to clients, look, it doesn't work if you're not otherwise terribly inclined. Yes. So if you're not otherwise terribly inclined, and if you're like one of my favorite clients who says to me, my charity is my family, then that's probably not a planning strategy you want to employ. But to the extent that charity is a self-expression for you and giving to charity is part of the legacy that you want to create. I think a charitable lead trust or a charitable remainder trust are great strategies. I'm doing something kind of interesting. So when I first started Savvy Ladies 20 some years ago, I took out a 20 year term for a million dollars life insurance policy on me with the beneficiary being Savvy Ladies. Ladies, yep. Please tell me you don't own it. I don't. I don't. (laughs) But it doesn't matter anyway, because now it was a term policy. Yeah. 
And my thought was, I want to make sure that the organization is able to fully function Mm -hmm. without me if, God forbid, something happened. But now I'm in a place where I'm like, okay, wait, I do want to, upon my death, leave something to the charity. And one of the things I was thinking about was potentially having one of my beneficiaries on my 401k plan be savvy ladies. Now, my husband has to sign off on that because it's a ERISA-based plan. And so you can't just disinherit your spouse. So he would actually have to sign a form. It would have to be notarized. But my thought process was that they get a portion of my 401k and they get 100% tax-free, where for him, he's going to owe 40 to 50 cents on every dollar he pulls out. If there's any asset that I should be leaving to the charity, this tax-inefficient asset, is that something that you- Perfect and sound like a true, very good financial advisor. (laughs) Okay. Well, yeah, I'm happy. I'm having the conversation with my husband this weekend because I text him and I realized, Sarah, I shouldn't. I said, hey, Michael, I'm going to leave 50% of my 401k to Savvy Ladies. Is that okay? (laughs) And he was so good about it. He goes, stay, let's chat. Not sure this is the text conversation. <laughs> like, you know what? You that. are so right. You're so we, right. We love our spouses and we pick them for a reason. And, and anyway, he was so like, nice. He's like, I'm not so sure this is the perfect conversation via text. So that's yeah, what we're talking I, about this weekend. So many of but, my clients will come to me. As I said, most of my clients are well in excess of $20 million. But let's say they have some charitable inclination. They have some 401k. Many partners at big law firms or partners at accounting firms, much of their wealth is built up in these deferred plans. Yeah, yeah. And to the extent that you are charitably inclined and you would like to have that charitable deduction, the perfect asset to use is your retirement account. Yeah. And so we, the woman I was talking about who had fully funded her revocable trust and within four days of her passing, we were able to step in and have access to her bank account. She was very trouble inclined and she gave her entire 401k, millions and millions of dollars to her foundation. And it was a very smooth, easy strategy for her. And we got the charitable deduction on her estate. That makes me feel so And good. get the charitable deduction at the fair market value of the asset right on her date of death. Yeah. So which there's is no built a good in. number. Yeah. Since we're talking about spouses, I want to get time in for one other thing something called a SLAT, which makes me think about building materials, but it's not. It's a spousal lifetime access trust. I'm reading a lot about this. Mm-hmm. seems like it's a much more popular tool. Tell me what it is and how you see clients be able to use it. Yeah. So a SLAT is essentially a vehicle where you can do lifetime giving. So you use your some of your $13 million exemption. You put it into a trust for the benefit of your spouse and your children and other persons. And they say lifetime access is because your spouse is a beneficiary, distributions could be made to your spouse to support your lifestyle. Really, your spouse's lifestyle, but since you're married, it's your your joint lifestyle. There's a few things you have to be careful about when you're doing a SLAT. And I think SLATs are great. I think it's a very smart plan, especially for folks who are not really able to give away all of their assets to the next generation and might mm-hmm. still need to have some access as a couple to those assets for purposes of living their lifestyle. And as more of as a backdoor, I always tell clients, don't fund a slat, don't fund any of these trusts if you think you're going to need to rely on this money. And I say that just because I don't want the IRS coming back and saying, this yeah. is all just a rule, <laughs> which <laughs> is exactly mm-hmm. the point. So you have to think about 
there's certain doctrines that are at play when you're thinking about creating a slat. So you don't want it to be like, I set up a trust for you, honey, and you set up a trust for me, and they're exactly the same. If you do that, you'd run afoul of this thing called the reciprocal trust doctrine. So if you are sitting with an attorney and they give you two trusts and they look exactly the same, <laughs> do me a favor and say, what about this thing called the reciprocal yeah. trust doctrine? But setting that aside, as a basic measure, the SLAT is designed so that you're still liable for all the income tax on those assets, but you've given the assets away for estate tax purposes. So you've used up some of your exemption. And if needed, your spouse has access as a distribution point so you can you know, pay your lifestyle. It's a very amazing. common tool. I can't yeah. tell you how many I created in 2012 when we thought the exemption was going to go down. And I very much anticipate it is going to be very, very popular over the next 24 months as people are yeah. up for well, less than that now as people. Yeah, for 2025. And yeah. so, again, just as a recap, it's taking up to that exemption amount, that $13 million. You don't have to do that amount, but nope. whatever amount you want to get out of your estate, putting in a trust that you still have somewhat access to. Well, your spouse um, as a beneficiary. Spouse, yeah. Right. Your spouse as a beneficiary has access to and it's a great way to have money for that next generation as well. What happens, Sarah, if you and your spouse get divorced? I was just going to say that you'll have to be mindful. So there's a few things you can think about. If it's structured, so it names that individual and the definition yeah. in that trust says my husband, John, and it doesn't say my husband, John, without any qualifying language and you get divorced. Now it's John's trust. Oh and God. Obviously, when you do your divorce proceedings, you'll have to consider that trust and the assets as to what you're severing and what you're dividing. And do you take that into consideration when you're thinking about maintenance and support and so forth? But that trust is for that person's benefit. And you don't just get to unwind it because you get divorced. That said, you can qualify the definition of spouse. There are some problems with this from a matrimonial perspective. So you would want to consult with your lawyer and make sure that they're mm -hmm. doing it properly in conformity with the law that you're in the jurisdiction you're in. But I have seen cases where spouse is not my spouse, John, my husband, John. It is John, provided we are then married and not then separated and we're not divorced. And if we are, John is deemed deceased. Got it. And then okay. you get divorced, John gets cut out. So okay. you do have to be mindful of that, that kind of structuring. And as an attorney, right, there's some conflict if you have a joint representation of Susan and John, and then all of a sudden you're actually drafting a trust that could easily cut John out. That's problematic from an attorney's perspective. So yeah, yeah. think about that a little bit. But yes, you can. But it, yeah, but it's edging. important to know because also so many of the women listening, they are on their own and they are thinking about estate taxes, thinking about ways to reduce them, whether it's gifts to their children, gifts to charity. And if they get remarried, again, wanting to make sure that the purpose of a trust would eventually go to their children, but yet take care of their spouse if, God forbid, she passes away. And being able to do that, I can see being a really good tool. Yeah, you Sarah, can also limit, sorry, the distribution amount to some spouses, right? You can make it only a certain amount, either of value or percentage yep. of the trust. Or 4% yeah. of the trust or 5% of the trust or a certain dollar amount per year. Yeah, or you could say... Yeah only distribution subject to health, education, maintenance, and support, which is like a smaller standard, you yeah, know, yeah. radically. So there are ways to build that in. And right. you really just need to talk to your attorney as to your intention. Yeah. I can't thank you enough, Sarah. 
can I think we didn't get to anything, Stacey. I know. We got through so much, but we could keep on talking forever. Of course, of course. How do our listeners reach out to you? And also, if you can share the states that you can work in or that you know of other colleagues. Yeah, so our with. firm is a national and international firm. Arnold and Porter is an international firm. We have trust and estates practitioners sitting in New York, D.C., and San Francisco. We can do work anywhere throughout the country, frankly. And if we're not barred in any of that state, we definitely have partners in those states to help assist high net worth families, family offices. One other thing we didn't talk about, Stacey, and we were going to, I think it's important to kind of carve out that there are special rules that apply to non-U.S. citizens spouses and non-U.S. persons and U.S. assets. And that was one thing we didn't get into at all. But if you are listening to this, you know someone who is a high net individual who is not a U.S. citizen and has U.S. status assets or U.S. citizen spouse, but they're not a U.S. citizen, you should consult with a lawyer because that's about 60% of my business. It's a very complicated area and the government isn't as favorable. So you just have to really think about how you structure your affairs to ensure that you're minimizing your estate tax exposures. Yeah, no, I wholeheartedly agree with you, Sarah. When Michael and I got married, he was not a U.S. citizen. He was a green card holder. So, you know, had I passed away, I would be paying estate taxes on all, but at that time it was like maybe a little over $100,000. So a lot of things to think about. He actually got his citizenship, so he's now a citizen. So it's like... You don't have to be. There's special trust that you can put in yeah. place, which I'm sure you're familiar with. This is special qualified domestic trust, but you just have to talk to a lawyer is the point. Yeah. So to make sure yeah. that you have the right structures in place to support your family. Yeah. Well, thank you. And what is the best way oh, for I'm um, sorry to reach out to you, Sarah? Yeah, email is probably great. I think you'll okay. put them in the show notes yep. or my phone number. Look my up on the bio. Right. I'm pretty responsive on email and phone. And I'm happy to connect anyone with resources throughout the country internationally if you have a question. So thank you. And for all of you listening, definitely we will be putting in Sarah's email and phone number and a link to the website and for contact information. And thank you for joining us, Sarah. This was really good. And again, the things we were talking about were not the most straightforward, but I have to tell you, it was so much fun and I didn't get lost anywhere along the way. I really had just an absolute ball. I really enjoyed it. Well, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate your time. I love talking with Sarah, and she was able to take some pretty sophisticated planning strategies in the estate planning field and, well, kind of make it pretty darn understandable and straightforward. I hope that you enjoyed this as much as I did. I know that so many people feel, well, quite confused and sometimes a little intimidated about how to make sure that their wealth is passed on to their loved ones and the causes that they care about. They often can feel confused and, well, a little intimidated about investing as well. If you have any questions about your portfolio, please reach out to us. Our superpower is creating tax-efficient portfolios that produce the income and growth you need to live your best life. You can reach out to me with my email, Stacy S-T-A-C-Y, at francisfinancial.com. Or you can go to our website. We've got a wealth of great information for you. And that's at www.francisfinancial.com. We'll be seeing you in two weeks. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for tuning in to Financially Ever After Widowhood. If there's a question you'd love for us to answer on the podcast, we can do that for you. 
all you have to do is give us a call. And the number is 347-682-5580. Let me say that again. 347-682-5580. Whether you're working with an advisor or you're maybe doing it on your own, we invite you to reach out to us at www.francisfinancial.com or you can email me at Stacy S-T-A-C-Y, at francisfinancial.com. Our hope is to be a resource for you to help you also find a great financial advisor, whether that be with our firm or one of our trusted colleagues. Please be sure to like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast and join us next time on Financially Ever After Widowhood.